Well, welcome everyone. Thank you for your presence today. Here we are in November. I want to welcome also all of those that are that are here with us through uh, Zoom and also uh, through our our uh, uh, live cast and and all of that. So we I learn about people sort of week by week that I haven't seen, but who, who let us know that they they are present with us and participating. Uh, though it's, you know it's that you have to use your imagination as you as you think about the the congregation and so forth. Uh, we're looking this morning at uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 31, which includes the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Plain this week and then next week uh, as, as well. Um, remember just all of those that that Alexandra mentioned in her prayer we have so many that are that are in need please continue to pray for all uh, of them and for just all of the things that are happening in our congregation I hope that you have a copy of the uh, the translation my translation of the text uh, and uh, a couple of three extra scriptures and then just some subheadings I'm going to fill those in and uh, and have them available online later, but they are not in, uh, available just yet. So I, I apologize for that. But I do want us to go into this, this uh, text. We've been following Luke now and going through the way in which he leads us to, to understand Jesus. And this Sermon on the Plain is a substantial beginning. It is, in, in, it, for Luke, really the substantial beginning of Jesus' teaching of the kingdom of God. And teaches it in a way that is challenging, shall we say. That challenges the minds, it challenges the imagination, it challenges the hearts, it challenges the, the hopes, the life aims, the ambitions, the ethical relations, the self-identity of Jesus' disciples. Now it follows, as we've seen, as we've journeyed with Luke, the event of healing in on the sabbath day that was earlier in this chapter where he heals the man who has a withered hand on the sabbath and that becomes a, as we saw a clear break with those who might have been G the teachers that would would teach what jesus as the prophet of god would bring out but but it marks a break with those primary teachers at, in israel the pharisees and the instructors in the law that are call, usually called the scribes they were calling Israel to rigorous commitment. That's, that, to them, expressed the heart of piety, rigorous commitment to obedience to the law. They argued that all Jews, um, following the practices that were, should be following the practices that were originally intended for, for priests, because Jews were supposed to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation as uh, picking up the phrases from, from Exodus 19, verse 6. Luke says, and it's really quite a, quite a phrase that he uses uh, as he tells this, and just, just before the beginning of what's there on your sheet, before the beginning of the calling of the disciples, uh, he, he says that these people, when they saw Jesus, uh, this man, uh, Jesus told the man to stand up and his hand is healed, they were filled with 
usually gets translated maybe fury, but it also has the idea of a mindlessness. And so in my translation last week, I translated mindless fury, annoia, at Jesus. And they began intensive discussions of what they could do to Jesus. Luke lets us see this as a marker of the decisive beginning of that growing opposition that gains strength and leads by various paths to Jesus' crucifixion. That's when Jesus, as Luke describes it, spends a whole night in prayer with God on a mountain. And he calls the growing crowd of his disciples to him in the morning and he chooses twelve and to give, give the name of them there. And the, I've included the passage there on the front side of your sheet and slightly reduced type just for space uh, in order to, uh, to remind us uh, of this calling, the 12, the symbolic reminder of the original people of Israel, the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob, and, and so forth. But he doesn't call these followers as patriarchs. He calls them as apostles. He calls them as emissaries. Now, they're going to become eventually teachers. They'll certainly be leaders, yes. But the focus is on them being set out, set out as witnesses to something. They're going to be emissaries who go out and tell what has happened in Jesus. What happened in Jesus' work, in his life, and ultimately his death and resurrection? This motley crew of men, and they are all men, because in that day, as we've seen, across the entire Roman Empire, with all of its otherwise variation, only men were considered capable of bearing serious witness to anything, whether it was in court or in any public forum. And we'll come back to this as we go along, as we watch Jesus even defy scandal by including women in his traveling group of disciples. This group of men, along with other disciples, would ultimately go out and recount Jesus' teaching as, so as to tell Jesus' story. And it's the, the teaching is not what they're there to memorize. This is not a thing where they're now they're set on the task of Jesus is going to write out some things for them to, to memorize and notes to take and all of that. But they are there to be with Jesus. They're not, they're not scripture scholars. They're not philosophers. They're not even particularly educated. They're human beings who are interested and who are willing to be engaged, to be present, to be puzzled to be troubled by what Jesus says and does, but to stay with it, to be part of the story all the way to the end, or at least what at the time seemed like the end. Everything is public. They don't get some special secret teaching quite different from what Jesus says to everyone else, but because they're there all the time, their perspective is more complicated, more complex, more challenging. They're going to watch why. What they're actually going to watch is they're going to watch the entire world change as the creator of the world in Jesus, Jesus the human being, 
the son of the human, the son of man, or as our, in our scripture reading just now, the, the human one, engages the life of all the humans that God has created. And in love takes on all our deepest, most festering wounds and insoluble mysteries, including death, and brings God's rule, God's kingdom to life, to life and to light, and, and to give us new resurrection life by God's Spirit. Now that's a lot. That's a lot. No one, not a single, certainly not a single one of these 12, but no one in general except Jesus is expecting exactly what God does. Though people with hopes and longings are all around, the more they're immersed in Israel's story, people like, like the ones we've met already in the story in, in Luke, people like, like Zechariah or Simeon or Anna or Mary, the deeper their longings go. But all of those longings, it, it isn't something that even the most intent new disciples can take in sort of in an introductory lecture where Jesus says, now, let me explain to you what, what, what's the agenda, where we're going, what are we going to do, and so forth. No one has the resources in themselves to imagine God and humanity dying together in one person on a torturous Roman cross much less to imagine the whole goal of all things, the goal that always was associated with the end of the world, breaking into our human story by Jesus' resurrection, which by the Holy Spirit becomes the start of your own resurrection, our own resurrection and resurrection life. In fact, almost none of this can be really grasped, will really be grasped, until it actually happens as we come to the end of the gospel, as Luke, as Luke leads us all the way to the end. So you might say to me, whoa, you know, um, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. This morning we're just supposed to be looking at the first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. And that's often treated as sort of Luke's abbreviated version of the Sermon on the Mount, the little brother of the Sermon on the Mount, as it were. But we're not going to be looking at Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. Luke is our guide here. And Luke knows exactly where this course of events is going. And how challenging it is for even Christian believers in his own time. Quite a few decades now after the events he's recounting. It was difficult for them to grasp. It was difficult for them to take in. It was difficult for them to understand. Really... No human being living in the ordinary world has really a place for the God and creator of the universe to die. Perhaps Nietzsche accepted, though he didn't believe it, of course. Much less on an instrument of torture and to die for me. We make up lots of gods and superheroes, even with all kinds of quirks. We actually worship power and its manifestations, especially in money, mammon, that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. 
violence, rulers, national and ethnic identity, race, fertility, sex, and pleasure. We want a story of human progress, human enlightenment and discovery, of independence and autonomy gained by fighting off villains for it. We love the story of a revolution of liberation of the righteous underdogs fighting and destroying the soulless evil empire, undermining them and destroying them with their own weapons, <clears throat> with the hero and heroine having, um, uh, getting together, shall we say, at the end of the, of the movie or whatever it is for some sort of pleasure to mark the victory. That's why I'm always a bit surprised when a week comes like this one, when I have to preach on a text like Jesus' teaching this morning, this start of the Sermon on the Plain, that when we read it, as Steve did so beautifully for us, everybody doesn't just get up and walk out. In the world we live in, the air and media we breathe, not a single solitary thing that Jesus says is really true. Where he seems to intend to give wise advice or instruction, it's not wise. It's not going to bring about triumph and success over opposition in the real world. But thank goodness you're still here. You didn't walk out. We're still here. We listened one more time. At the end of the reading, we even said amen. Maybe it's because we recognize something paradoxical here. There's real power present in Jesus that anybody can recognize. That's the language that the crowds then and now recognize and respond to. Jesus heals people. In Jesus' case, it's that power of healing with some listening on the side. And we can feel as we hear it, read the description of it in our text. We can feel the draw. Crowds from everywhere around, like the stadium crowds for a rock concert. They press in. Everybody wants to touch. Everybody wants to feel the power. And they feel it. And it, and it works. Read Luke Six, uh, uh, 17 through 20, verse, uh, verse 20a. Um, I'm going to be reading from my own translation here. When Jesus came down with them, that is the 12 that he had just named, he stood on a level place along with a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of the people from all the Jewish region, even Jerusalem, as well as the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, that would be typically Gentile, people who came to listen to him and to be cured of their diseases. Even those suffering trouble from unclean spirits were being healed, and everyone in the crowd was trying to touch him, for power, kept, for power from him kept coming forth, and it was healing everyone. And when his eyes gazed out at his disciples, Jesus began to speak. We are 
right there. Luke takes us right there. We, we understand the situation. We're drawn into it. Yes, but when Jesus opens his mouth and begins to speak, that's when it gets hard, hard to take. Just listen to it. I'm going to read it again from my, my own uh, translation that you have on your sheet. Blessed are the impoverished. Really? For God's kingdom is your own. Blessed are those who are hungry now. For you're going to eat, you'll fill. Blessed are those who are crying now. For you're going to laugh. Blessed are you when all humans at large hate you. And when they exclude you. And revile you. And expel your very identity as evil. On account of the son of the human. Be glad that day. Jump for joy. Or look, your reward in God's realm is great. For in just the same ways their fathers used to act toward the prophets. Woe rather to you who are rich. Because you're receiving your consolation in full. Woe to you who've been filled up now, because you're going to be hungry. Woe to those who are laughing now, because you're going to mourn and cry. Woe when all humans speak well of you, for in just the same ways their fathers used to act toward the false prophets. Well. Hmm. What are we supposed to make of this? Let's start with that word human, something that I think you'll notice is a kind of awkward translation that I used. It occurs three times in, in this text. In verse 22, it occurs twice, and in verse 26. In the CB, CEB translation that you heard Steve read, it's translated once as people, and then the last time it's used, it's translated as all. And Jesus is called the human one. In all three cases, though, it translates one Greek word, the Greek word anthropos. It's a fairly hefty word, anthropos, a big word. And it means a human being. It's not a god, not an animal, but a human being. Jesus is the son of the human. Usually tra gets translated son of man. The human who in Daniel's vision, in Daniel 7, as we've mentioned so many times, receives the divine eternal kingdom, but still the human, son of the human. Jesus calls himself that son of the human throughout those, these gospels. But Jesus creates an irony, a tension. It's the humans, the anthropoi, those very ones who hate you and who exclude you, who despise you, reject your name, and all of those. But if you're bad, the humans speak well of you. The humans seem to be potentially all of us living in the ordinary world. 
Jesus wants us to feel the irony, to feel the challenge. The humans are the ones that we're part of, the ones who are going to tell us if we're successful or if we're not, whether we're worth taking note of, whether we're included, whether we're excluded. Listen to the blessings again. Blessed are the impoverished, for God's kingdom is your own. Blessed are those who are hungry now, for you're going to eat your fill. Blessed are those who are crying now, for you're going to laugh. Blessed are you when humans at large, that's just a translation to try to get the flavor of hoi anthropoi. Blessed when humans at large hate you and when they exclude you and <laughs> and revile you and well can you go in well what can we go more expel your very name your very identity as evil on account of the son of the human be glad that day and jump for joy for look, your reward in God's realm is great for in just the same ways their fathers used to act toward the prophets. Now, all of us humans know that it is no blessing to be impoverished. Remember the scripture that Jesus himself read from Isaiah when he was at Nazareth, it's in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. The Lord's Spirit is on me because he anointed me to announce good news to any who are impoverished. He sent me to proclaim release to captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to send out free any who are oppressed, to proclaim a welcome year of the Lord. Do we even have to say it? Even Jesus tells us to help the poor, the impoverished, not to make people impoverished or poor so they'll be blessed. Ah, unless, unless, is he saying that there's an economic qualifying threshold for the kingdom of God? If you're poor enough, you're in. Lots of Christians through the ages have sort of thought so going out into the desert, taking vows of poverty, renouncing everything, living with strict asceticism, owning nothing. Is Jesus giving us wise guidance for how we can make our way into the kingdom of God, how we can go to heaven? The same question comes up for being hungry and crying or weeping or being hated and excluded and reviled. We humans all know that those are not descriptions of blessing. We know from Jesus himself that we're to feed the hungry, overcome the conditions that cause people to cry and mourn, get rid of hatred and exclusion. And then what about those woes? Woe rather to you who are rich because you're receiving your consolation in full. 
Woe to you who've been filled up now because you're going to be hungry. Woe to those who are laughing now because you're going to mourn and cry. Woe when all humans speak well of you, for in just the same ways their fathers used to act toward the false prophets. Now, really, who of us humans doesn't work, shall I say, work hard to be financially secure, if not really rich? Who doesn't want our kids and ourselves not to face the threat of hunger? Who doesn't want to enjoy life, to laugh with friends and family, to have a good reputation in the community so that people speak well of us? Is Jesus saying that these obviously good things are really bad and that the things that motivate so much of our lives are really going to block us off from heaven? Is, is this really good advice, wise guidance? <sighs> well, Jesus says what he says, and he calls us to ponder. That's my responsibility. That's your responsibility. <laughs> and, and Jesus does not explain it to us to tell us exactly what the right answer is. And I'm not going to pretend that I have any final answer to undo the quandary that Jesus presents to us humans. But just a few reflections. This is the beginning of a revisioning of the world that can lead us to be able to understand what's happening in Jesus. We see the world through our human glasses, focused on what's near at hand. It goes with the territory of living in our very vulnerable, me-centered bodies. Notice two elements in, in the text, uh, that, um, especially of the blessings and the woes, which are parallel to each other very clearly, uh, that, that help us to understand it. The first is the way each of them ends. Um, it ends with the ancient story of Israel, the prophets, how people treated the prophets. It's that, that theme of the old wine that we've heard Jesus talk about before, the good wine. You read the story of ancient Israel and you learn that the great prophets of God, who were articulating the ways of God to his, to his people, were again and again rejected and persecuted. They often lived hungry on nearly nothing. And if you want to know about weeping, just read Jeremiah and his descriptions of his calling and his experiences. Weeping from the heart. On the other hand, the same ancient history shows that there, there, there were always whole colleges of prophets who worked for the powerful and had great reputations. Who's, who was it that saw things clearly? Was it Jeremiah, who was evaluated and thought by his contemporaries to be a traitor? Or was it, what's his name, that, that prophet who opposed him, who was supported by the king? 
Who really saw reality? The second element to notice is how Jesus talks about present experience now. That's the challenge and the danger that the things that seem so good listed under the woes present to us. We see the security that we've accumulated, those of us, and almost any American is part of the wealthy of the world. We see the security we've accumulated. We feel its consolation. We like being filled up now. We like laughing now. I certainly do. Those present pleasures tend to widen out and fill up the whole scope of our vision. Our world becomes limited to the scope of our circumstances. We've got what we need. We've got what we want for the moment. We'll get more. That's enough. That's life. Woe to the rich. They are experiencing the consolation and security they seek in full right now. Blessed are the impoverished. I think not because they're impoverished, not because they're poor, but maybe because their circumstances keep them dissatisfied, looking, hoping, longing for something, something better. Blessed are those who are hungry now, those who are crying now. These are people who are never going to think that everything's just fine. It's that dissatisfaction, that hunger, that longing that begins the process of opening a person up to see a new reality, or not, no, not a new reality, the old reality that's been here all along, the reality of God covered over by human ambition and self-satisfaction. Jesus isn't giving us advice here. He's not telling us a strategy for getting into the kingdom. He's trying to open our eyes to see reality, God's reality. That has always been there, but to our blinded, myopic eyes is breaking in in Jesus' ministry. But then notice where Jesus goes. He gives a series of bullet point instructions, commands for life. But they're crazy. As anyone who lives in the real human world knows, but I'm telling you who are listening, love your enemies. Treat graciously those who hate you. Pronounce a blessing on those who curse you. Pray on behalf of those who treat you despicably. To one who hits you, and notice that here we, that, well, the, those, two, those last two verses were 
talking about you in the plural, the whole group. Now it turns to you in the singular. To one who hits you on the cheek, what's the best thing to do? Offer the other two. And from one who takes your coat, don't stop them from taking your shirt too. To everyone who asks you, give. And from one who takes your things, don't ask them back. And just as you want people to do for you, do that same for them. <sighs> well, I read that pretty quickly. It's easy just sort of to let it flow. But go back and think, what an assignment of practice that Jesus gives. Now, love, of course, we know is just something fuzzy and warm and bubbly. But if you start trying to love your enemies, <laughs> the fuzzy and warm and bubbly goes. Love your enemies. The fact that they are enemies is, means already that they have broken down all the motivations for love. And in, instead, there's a wall erected that blocks our love in any normal sense. Treat graciously those who hate you. Hmm, that sells. Those who hate you deserve what they get. Because by definition, you are right, right? And those who hate you are not. Treat with grace. Kalos in Greek, those who hate you. Pronounce a blessing. This is not just say something nice. Pronounce a blessing on those who curse you. Pray on behalf of those who treat you despicably. <laughs> oh, Jesus, please shut up. <laughs> to one who hits you, Tom on the cheek what's my best advice again please <laughs> offer the other two I think I'm a masochist and from the one who takes your coat don't stop them from taking your shirt too to everyone who to everyone who asked you <laughs> give uh, no, 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 no. Especially brothers-in-law. And from one who takes your things, don't ask them back. <sighs> wow. How do you tell people what this new old world of God looks like? What is the world of the kingdom of God? As far as Jesus is concerned, you don't tell them. 
You don't explain it to them. Jesus simply tells them to start practicing. Practice, 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 as the old saying is. You have to live into that world. And every one of the instructions that Jesus gives is short and it's simple and it's basically impossible from a human point of view. And every one of them has a single direction. Always be proactive. Live actively from the inside out. Every bit of God's love, of God's world that you've seen so far. Try it. Test it. Do it. It's very clear-eyed. The world is full of hostility and danger, and you are vulnerable, just as I'm vulnerable, Jesus says. You, whether it's the group or whether it's the individual, may well get hurt. You may suffer loss. Any things that you possess are only yours in trust for a moment. Don't let your motivation or action be determined by your right to possess these things. But I worked for them. They're my security. Jesus says, no, they're not. They're a gift entrusted to you. If you hold on to them too tight, they're a mortal danger to you. Refuse to let the human view shape you. <laughs> but I'm human. <laughs> and I live in this world. And I breathe the air of it. And I see the media of it and all of that. The competitive, struggling pattern of life, the pattern that pays back every offense, that excludes everyone who's different from me, who are, challenges my identity, that brings about the, the racial divides and the divides over sexual identity and the divides over wealth and all of these things so that we have the, one of the most, well, not one of the most, but a divided society. Even those who are actively hostile to me, it tells me to love them. You, I, control the story. That's what Jesus said. We determine our actions, not the hostility or even the violence of those against us. We begin learning to write a new story. Because and as we see reality, as we see the real world of God, we've experienced God's love. We're opening ourselves to God's kingdom. We practice love in all of its intense and difficult and complicated reality even towards enemies, genuinely seeking the good of the other, that's what love is about. Sometimes the good you seek may mean helping to stop them from doing more harm, but that doesn't come out of a battle mentality or out of possessiveness of my own stuff. Oh, that's hard. Practice, practice, practice. Every one of these amazing commands of Jesus refuses to put a boundary between me and anyone else. The practice begins to help me see the reality of God in Jesus. 
It's just a few sentences later in the Sermon on the Plain, the section we're going to get to next week, that Jesus says in Luke 6.35, but love your enemies. Act for the good of others and lend, expecting nothing back. Your reward will be great. You'll be children of one who is most high, for he himself is good to the unthankful and the evil. The great reward is that we gain ourselves as children of God that God created us to be, not short-sighted and distorted. It helps us begin to envision how God can do the grace-filled, loving things that God does in Jesus. It helped those disciples on that journey. Jesus is beginning to lead those disciples, including us down the line, into the central mystery, the meeting place of God and us in Jesus. As Jesus will say a few chapters from now in chapter 9, it is necessary for the son of the human the Son of Man, to suffer many things and be rejected as unworthy by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. If any want to come in my path, and notice this translation, it's usually translated deny themselves, but let me offer a different translation. Let them recognize that they don't know themselves like Peter didn't know Jesus. Let them recognize that they don't know themselves and let them pick up their cross as each day provides it and let them follow me. For whoever's purpose is focused on saving their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life by following me, they'll save that life. Love your enemies. Save your own life. Amen.